Uh, this morning we are starting a new series that's going to run from now until Easter on the names of Jesus. So the time after Christmas is often a time uh, historically and in church tradition where the church focuses on um, the teachings and the life of Jesus Christ. After having celebrated his birth at Christmas and then working towards journeying towards his death and resurrection at Easter. And so I thought a unique way to do that this year would be to explore some of the the many names that we see in Scripture, Um, some of the ways that Jesus not only speaks about himself, so the phrases and the words that he uses to self-identify, but also we'll be exploring some of the names or titles that other biblical authors give to him as a means of identifying the kind of person that he was and still is for us today. So today we're going to be looking at one of the ways that the Apostle Paul speaks about him in Colossians 1 verses 15 to 20. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can turn to Colossians chapter 1. The words will also be up on the screen, so you can read it that way as well. Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so like... Like with all of our biblical books, this letter was penned by a particular person in a particular context. And in this case, it was the Apostle Paul writing to a fairly new church in the city of Colossae that was very heavily influenced by the culture around it. The apostles had brought the gospel to the Colossians, the church was formed, and they had been given core beliefs from the apostles about who Jesus is, because of course, that's the most important thing. Who is this person of Jesus? But as we see with many of the early churches, there were false teachers, as as scholars have called them, false teachers in Colossae that believed different things and sought to sort of reconvert these oh-so-silly Christians back to the ways of their Greco-Roman, philosophical, syncretistic sorts of ideas. There was a lot of different types of ideas floating around in the early first century in the Greco-Roman time period. Uh, So what was happening here wasn't so much that the Colossian church was being unfaithful, it's just that they were so young in their faith, they simply couldn't tell when false ideas were starting to come into the church. They didn't have the tools to distinguish when they were being offered a slanted version of the truth. And we're talking here particularly, again, about truths concerning the person of Jesus, the most contested figure, perhaps, in all of church history, simply because of the complexity of his existence. No one has ever existed like Jesus. There's never been anyone like Jesus, so he's a little bit hard to figure out sometimes. And fresh revelations, right, new information, can feel very exciting, 
right? And so then these, these Colossians were, were amped. They were excited to receive a little extra teaching in between Paul's visits. I mean, why not? These people seem smart and confident and evidently know what they're talking about. So we'll just invite them in until Paul comes back, and he'll be so excited when he finds out that we've gleaned all this new information. What this, but what this wisdom, this, this quote-unquote wisdom from the outside was doing, was giving them a false understanding of who Jesus is. Historians call it Gnosticism. It was, it was sort of, they called it a special knowledge. That's kind of what it stands for. A special knowledge that was grounded in the idea that the material world is actually evil. And so God can't be connected to the material world because that would make God evil. The whole point, actually, of our existence, they would say, is that we need to get out of this earth. We need to get away from this world by, by attaining higher levels of knowledge. So the more wisdom we attain, the higher we can go away from this world to achieve a sort of higher level of being. Because if the world's evil, you want to get out of it. That was the whole idea. See, humans, if you haven't noticed, have this innate tendency to want to categorize, right? This is evil. This is good. This is black, this is white. This is spiritual, that is material. This is secular, that's sacred. This is private, that's public. This is wise, that's ignorant. If God is divine, he can't be human, right? He can't be both. It's got to be one or the other. Creator cannot become the created or have anything to do with the material world. Paul begs to differ. And note how he enters into this conversation. We see it earlier in chapter 1 that Paul's greatest prayer for this church in verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9, is that God would fill them with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that they can live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. In other words, the most important thing is distinguish, in distinguishing truth from falsity is being filled with the Holy Spirit. Because it's only the Holy Spirit who can truly teach and, and solidify within us the truths of Jesus. Only the Spirit can do that. But allow us to actually receive the truths of Jesus and solidify them within us. So with that introductory prayer, Paul now gives an explanation, a sort of poetic portrait and, and scholars have actually separated this out. If um, The way that we see it in Scripture, it's all just one big paragraph, but it can actually be separated out into a poem. It's a very, it, maybe it was an early hymn, we don't know. But it's a poetic portrait of who Jesus really is, of who Jesus really is. And what follows are perhaps some of the most in-depth verses on exactly how Jesus is connected to God. Not just how he's connected to God, but how he's somehow actually part of God himself. Verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The spitting image, in other words, of his Father. We've touched on this theme of image a few times in the, uh, in the fall, so it, does, it did sort of seem appropriate to begin this series with that because I would love for us to all just be experts on this topic. I know we've touched on it a few times, but now we'll go into a little bit more detail. Let's remember here, just remind ourselves, and again, you'll, you'll remember this from some of the sermons in the fall from Jeremiah, but let's just remind ourselves of what Scripture means when we use that term image, okay? Genesis 1.27, God makes men and women to be his 
image, okay? He, he stamps his image on them. He wants them to be his representatives, to be his physical presence on earth, to be the physical image of his invisible nature, to be his presence, to display him to the rest of creation. So when you hear that word image, I want you to think of it as a task or a responsibility, okay? Humans were made to image God. It's almost, almost think of it like a verb. This is something we do. We image God. But sin, of course, ruined that plan. That role or responsibility of being the image was, was set aside. It, it was abandoned. It was relinquished. Sort of like someone who signs a job contract but then never shows up. Signs an employment contract but never shows up to the job. Turns out humans wanted to be their own image, right? They, they didn't and still don't want to work for anybody else. And as our liturgy actually said earlier, when we no longer show God's image, all of creation suffers. This is what happened. Humans didn't want to display God's image. They didn't want to be owned by anybody else. They wanted to be their own. So the image then had been tainted by our, our own sinfulness and selfishness. But the idea of it the plan that God had from the very beginning, the ideal, what was intended, has always remained the plan. Which is why the Israelites were never allowed to make an image, a golden calf, a statue, whatever. Not just because God is imageless and unformed and spirit, but because he had chosen human beings as his special creatures to walk in relationship with him so that he could be reflected through them to all of creation. He didn't want them to create images, okay? He didn't want them, he didn't want that kind of a relationship where they approach him through a statue and, you know, they drop off their sacrificial offerings, talk through him through this material object and then peace out. He didn't want that. He wanted a more intimate connection with them. And what we read here in Colossians, according to Paul, is that now Jesus is the image of God, of the invisible God, the image, the perfect image, the perfect representation, the means actually by which we are now in relationship with God, which means that the initial idea, the, the plan for what humans were meant to be has now been perfectly fulfilled in and achieved by Jesus. Jesus does what we weren't able to do. He's the, the perfect reflection or manifestation of who God is. At our home in Coquitlam, we live, we live just across the bridge in Coquitlam, and we live in uh, a condo building. And it's one of those condo buildings where, that was built in the early 90s where apparently big mirrors were a thing in order to make the... Some of you are nodding. In order to make the space feel bigger, you know, some of those places. So... In both of our bathrooms, one whole wall is a mirror. We go through a lot of Windex in our house. And then in the hallway, uh, the coat closet, the two doors are just full-length mirrors. And the same is true in both of the bedrooms. And in the master bedroom, there's actually four of them. So in our home, we have eight floor-length mirrors. And when we moved in, I said to both our realtor and to Danny, my husband, this is either going to make us incredibly insecure or incredibly vain. But, but our son loves them. He, he loves, our, our little 14-month-old son loves them. 
So we play with him using the mirrors, you know, and um, often it's, if he's sitting in front of the mirror and he's, you know, making faces and playing with himself, we'll be kind of around the corner. So in theory, we're not beside him, but he can still see our reflection in the mirror. We're not beside him, but he's assured that our presence is nearby because he can see the reflection of us. For Paul, this was one of the best ways to think about Jesus. He's the image, the reflection of the Father who's hiding around the corner. His image assures us that the Father is present, that we can see the Father, but only through Jesus. Only through Jesus. In John 14, verse 9, after being asked to show his disciples the Father, Jesus says this, Don't you know me? Even after I have been around you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? See, they are one. The Father and the Son are one. Which is why Paul says in verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Because he was with God from the very beginning. Everything hangs together then in the activity of the image-bearing verb that is Jesus. Everything holds together in him. He was with the Father from the very beginning. Which is why then it only makes sense for Paul to go on to mention that Christ is also the head of the church. Because if he's the overseer and the action taker and the manager of all things on earth, then he's probably also the head of his own personal project. That would make sense. And here's the Kingpin verse. It's a hand talker. It's hard to hold something in your hand. Here's the Kingpin verse in verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All of it. All of his fullness in Jesus. In one person. God the Father was happy to see his fullness, his entire being, his character, his mind, his personality, his image displayed in human form in the fullest way. I don't think we ever really think about this, okay? All of it, all of God the Father in human form, wrapped up in Jesus. Imagine you're approached by a famous painter, okay, who wants to paint a portrait of you. You know, very flattered by this, you say yes, and you agree to be a model for this artist as they're painting this portrait of you. Well, you'd be sitting there, no doubt, hoping that this painting actually looks like you, right? That would be the hope, because maybe, it, you know, it's a famous artist, maybe you'd want to hang it up in your home, or you'd want to use it for next year's Christmas card, whatever you'd be sitting there hoping that it's actually an accurate representation of who you are. Even if there's some, you know, creative license taken. I mean, some of us have been to the fair before and we've had an artist, you know, those cartoon artists create a cartoon picture of us. Even if there's some fun and embellishment taken, we still want the picture to kind of look like us, right? If we're a fairly smiley person, we don't want the painting to be us scowling. That's just not accurate. You want it to look like you. God was pleased to have all of his appearance, if I can use that language, shouldered 
by Jesus, taken on by Jesus, worn and owned by Jesus, all of him in Jesus. So far then from being disconnected from the material world, Paul's saying to these false teachers and to everyone that everything they've ever searched for in a sort of otherworldly wisdom or, or secret knowledge is actually concluded in and pointing towards the person of Jesus. Everything you've ever looked for, in other words, everything in terms of wisdom and knowledge and rationality and, and otherworldly wisdom is found in Jesus. It's concluded in him. He's the answer to all of that. All of it has to filter through him. He's the divine logos, as we'll get talked about in a couple weeks. The rationality of the world in human flesh, the wisdom of God in person. It all holds together in him. So what then, what then does this wisdom, does this name of Jesus imply for us? Why does it matter so much that we grasp this, that we understand this, why is it just as important for us today as it was for the Colossians to be reminded about this truth of who, of who Jesus is? Well, for starters, reading these kinds of passages really keeps us from sidelining Jesus, from putting him in the back seat, from sitting him on the bench, from shoving him into a corner until we absolutely need him. These kinds of passages stress the importance of making him everything. Jesus is everything. Nothing drives me crazier than watching movies or listening to songs that are supposedly Christian or that claim to be Christian, but Jesus is never mentioned. Not once. It's all, you know, it's, it's, it's trust in God, have faith in God. God told me this, all you need is God. That's fair and acceptable, that's fine. But don't talk about the Father. Don't, don't talk about the Spirit. And definitely don't talk about Jesus because that's just, that's too niche, that's too specific. That'll, that'll really put people off. See, if we just talk about God, it's generic enough that everyone stays happy right? We actually see this operating on a larger scale when we talk about um, what's called Christian nationalism. So anytime a country um, wants their whole country to be about one religion, right? And we see this across the border, Christian nationalism in the States. As long as we are all on the same page about God, generically speaking, that's okay. We've seen it in our own, uh, our own nation's anthem, actually, where um, in all thy son's command has been taken out, if you're familiar with the, with the anthem. But God keep our land glorious and free is, is fine because it's generic enough. It doesn't offend anybody, right? Now, why those choices were made makes sense for our culture's context. It makes sense for our own country's context, but not for our faith. Not for the way that we need to continue thinking about our own understanding of who God is. Because Jesus is anything but generic. And our faith rests on nothing, literally nothing, if it does not rest on Jesus. There's no Christianity without Christ. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand, is it not? 
If we sing that, we need to live it. If we say that, we need to believe it. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says this, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He's the image of the invisible God. He shows us everything. He shows us who God is. As one author put it, Jesus isn't just a sketch or a summary of God. He's not just a copy of God. He's not just like God. As another scholar put it, he's the projection of God on the canvas of our humanity and the embodiment of the divine in the world of men and women. God the Father was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Jesus, which means that he desires that we always think of him in relation to Jesus. So it no longer makes sense then Excuse me. It no longer makes sense then to think about God without Jesus. Because what the Father wants is that when we think about Him, we think about Jesus. What Jesus wants is that when we think about Him, we think about the Father. Because they're one. That's how it works. And it's then, of course, the Spirit that enables us to do this. Because as I mentioned earlier, It's only the Spirit who can really solidify these truths within us. The Spirit enables us to do this, to receive these truths and allow them to shape how we live. Because as Paul writes in chapter 2, 9 to 10, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. I'm going to say that again after I take a drink. Ah, burning tea in my throat. As Paul writes, chapter 2, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. (coughs) Right? We've covered that. But here's, here's something totally new. In Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Huh? I've been brought to fullness? Like, what do you mean? Like, the same fullness? Or, or a, different, a different kind of, like, what does that even mean? I've been brought to fullness. See, this truth about Jesus also has implications for how we understand ourselves. He doesn't just show us who God is. He shows us what humanity was supposed to be as God designed it. Because if the fullness of God dwells in Christ, it follows then that if we abide in Christ in whom that fullness dwells, we also share in that fullness. Does that make sense? Let me say that again. If the fullness of God dwells in Christ, and we then abide in Christ, in whom that fullness dwells, we then share in that fullness. And we can represent that fullness in the way that we were supposed to. The image that rests in Christ is renewed in us. And once again, we're able to reflect God as was intended from the very beginning. See, it all comes full circle. This is why the plan, the intention behind all of creation is achieved in Jesus. Because it renews within us who we were called to be from the very beginning. It's why we talk about being reborn, born again, new creations. 
Because as his image is renewed within us, renewed again, remember, because it was set aside, it was tainted, it was, it was abandoned, as it's renewed within us, we look more and more like him. And in so doing, more and more like God. <coughs> Jesus is the likeness of God. And that likeness then is what true Christians are transformed into. A likeness not, not only of his glory, but also of his state of mind. Because when we have the mind of Christ, everything looks different, right? It actually changes the way that we live. It changes the way that we think. It changes the way that we act with other people, which is so essential for us to be transformed to having the, the mind of Christ, that part of his image reflected in us. Because we don't even realize, we don't even realize how impacted we are by the culture's way of doing things. It's very difficult for us to diagnose the water that we're swimming in and recognize, similar to what the Colossians had to do, when we're being presented with ways or, of doing things or, or ways of thinking about things that actually don't reflect Jesus. It's very easy and it's very hard for us to diagnose when that's happening. I was listening to the radio the other day on my way to work, which is kind of a <coughs> I'm so sorry, you guys. I've got something in my throat here. Um, I was listening to the radio on my way to work the other day, and I wanted a little blast to the past, so I turned on Move 103.5, which is like all 90s music. Don't laugh. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I have to listen to Praise 106.5 all the time. <laughs> so I was listening to Move 103.5, and it was in between songs, um, and the radio hosts were having a conversation about a woman who had written in asking a question. So I guess she had had some friends from out of town that had asked if they could stay at her place, so she and, she and her husband's house, um, but she was struggling to figure out how to say no because she actually gets a lot of anxiety in hosting. Her husband doesn't. Her husband loves hosting, but she gets lots of anxiety hosting other people, but she didn't know how to say no, and I guess she had, she had written into a, a newspaper columnist, and the columnist had essentially said to her, well, if your husband likes hosting, let him do the hosting, and you go stay in a hotel. Uh, so they were laughing about this, but of course then they're sharing their ideas of like, what would you do in that situation? And they asked for, you know, suggestions from people who were listening. So they could either text or call in with other suggestions. And I kid you not, everything, every single suggestion or piece of advice that came in was a lie. Every single one. You know, use... Use your allergies as an excuse. Say your mother-in-law is coming into town. Say you don't have a big enough space. Say you're actually not going to be available. Every single thing that came in was a lie. And of course it was funny. It, you know, they make a joke about every single one of it because everyone loves to talk about how to get out of uncomfortable positions, you know, uncomfortable situations with people that you don't really like or don't want to be around, right? It's, it's a habitual thing that we do. We laugh at discomfort. <laughs> It's what we do. But nobody, nobody even mentioned the idea of just being honest. Like, just, just say that, you know what? Like, we're in a season of life right now where I get pretty anxious having people over, and so it's just not a good time for us. But you know what? Like, we'd, we'd love to have you over for dinner one of the nights that you're in town, and we would love to also help you find other accommodation. What's the big deal? <laughs> right? No 
one, especially in this day and age, no one should ever feel bashful or uncomfortable about speaking about anxiety, depression, any kind of mental health situation. If they're really your friends, they'll understand. And if they don't, you probably shouldn't be friends with them. <laughs> right? but, but no one should ever feel bashful about, about anxiety. It's not a burden. It's not your fault. It's not something to feel guilt or shame about. It's just something to be honest about. That would, I think, be a healthy way to go about this situation. <laughs> anyway, I'm getting off topic, but the point of the illustration was simply to say how I was struck by how instinctive it was and how easy it is for us to go the easy route, and lying often is the easy route, and, and to sort of laugh about something that's actually more harmful in the long run. Being honest is is harder in the moment, but it's way healthier in the long run, right? But this is what we do. We, we squeeze our way out of awkward conversations. We, we find mechanisms for dealing with people that we don't want to be around. We lie so that we don't have to be honest about how we really feel. This is the default in our culture and probably other cultures. You know, in fact, it's probably a human default. This is just probably what we do. And I say all this to make the point that it's really easy. We don't even realize this. It's really easy to get all of our cues for living from people other than Jesus. Because we don't even realize how, oh man, I, I can't think of another word, ensconced we are, enveloped we are by the culture's way of doing things. And not even the culture, it's just human tendency we don't even realize how easy it is for us to get our cues from people other than Jesus, to image other people rather than to image Christ, to image what's popular rather than what's of God. But if we're actually wanting to be image bearers of Jesus, as Jesus is of the Father, then we need to actually seek out ways to regularly do this in prayer and in partnership with the Holy Spirit. See, because again, it's the Spirit that actually not just enables us to receive the truths of Jesus, but to live them out. Do my actions and my words and my conversations actually reflect Him? Is that what Jesus would say? Is this what Jesus would do? How would He look at this person? Would He be honest? Would Jesus actually himself assert his own boundaries and, and do it with compassion and empathy? Or would he let himself be run over by other people's expectations? Because, of course, Jesus would be a people pleaser. Would he lie to get out of an uncomfortable situation? Was Jesus actually ever uncomfortable with people? See, this is endless. <laughs> we could do this endlessly, just talking about what would Jesus do? What would he say? How would he approach this situation? We could think about him all the time. And I would argue that this is actually what enables us to follow him. It's when we actually bring him to mind regularly. To seek his reflection always in the mirror of our lives. How is his, how is his image being reflected into each situation? Not just when we pray, not just when we worship, not just when we read our Bibles or, or talk generically about God. Always. In every moment. I mean, why not let that be our goal? To think as much as we can about Jesus. Why wouldn't that be our goal? 
to reflect him more personally, more accurately, to train ourselves to bring Jesus into every conversation. How am I representing him right now? How am I representing him right now in the person that I'm talking to? How am I loving this person? How am I showing them Jesus? Am I listening well? Am I asking them questions? And if this person walks away, have they at least encountered an image of beauty that reflects a more beautiful image? See, reflecting Jesus starts first with recognizing that we aren't very good at it most of the time. That we are images of God, yes, but tainted images. Broken vessels, stained garments that are in need of saving grace. It's only out of this place that we actually recognize that we need Jesus to be our our image, our, our icon, our idol, if I can use that language. The one that we are looking to for our cues, for our ways of living, for our understanding of who God is. See, Paul's just doing for the Colossians what so often if not always, we need to do for ourselves. And that's be reminded always of who Jesus is and to fixate ourselves on his image so that we can take on the role that we were always meant to have. We come full circle then back to Paul's prayer for the Colossians earlier in chapter one. He says this, for this reason, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. Friends, you have the image of the invisible God stamped on you through Jesus Christ. When the Father looks at you, that's what He sees. You are his adopted sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ, which means that the Father now looks at you like how he looks at Jesus. You, in other words, are the spitting image of your Father in his eyes. You're Yahweh's boy. You're Yahweh's daughter. That's how he sees you. That's who you are. You actually, in his eyes, bear his image, whether you feel it or not. That's the reality. Own it. Own that identity. And then go and live like it. Let's pray. Living God, we, we ask, Father, that by your Spirit, you would enable us to receive whatever truth or truths that you would have us receive this morning about who you are, about who your Son is, and how, Father, you would desire for us to live this out. Lord, we know that it is only by your Spirit that we can receive anything. And so we ask that you would fill us with your fullness so that We may not only just receive the truths, the words that you desire to cement within our hearts, Lord, but that we can also be empowered to live it out. May your spirit bring you to mind and bring your son, Christ, to mind 
in our regular day-to-day existence so that everything we do, Lord, may bring you glory, that we may live a life that is worthy of you and worthy of this identity that you've given us through nothing that we could have ever done for ourselves, but only through your son, Jesus. And it's in his powerful name that we pray all of this. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.